One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Inside F1 with Joe Saywood on Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Inside F1 with Joe Saywood, part of the Missed Apex Motorsport Podcast Network. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, but you don't want to speak to me, do you? You want to speak to one of the most experienced journalists in F1 history. It's Joe Saywood. How's it going, Joe? Hey, good. I'm feeling very experienced today. Oh, does that <laughs> does that experience weigh heavily on you? How do you keep having enthusiasm after 85 years of reporting on F1? It sort of comes along. No, no, today I'm, I'm the, the experience thing. I just, as I was explaining earlier on to you, I've just inherited a bunch of books and um, and my very first computer, which I've re-inherited because I used to own it. I gave it away for a computer museum and I got given it back. So um, it's lovely. Hang and on. It's got we, all kinds of stickers from the 80s. We can't brush over that. Your laptop was in a museum. Well, it was in a. It was going to be in a museum. It was going to be in a computer museum because you know there are such things in the pipeline, because computers are actually now quite old. This is forty years old, and that's almost a museum piece. So, and this was one that battled the you know battled the elements, went around the world with me. It's got stickers on it from Mount Panorama, and uh, as an Australian radio sticker and a Japanese sticker on it. So it's been around the world a few times. And actually, the US Grand Prix sticker's on there too, from 1990. Oh, blimey. Not to mention the Formula One drinking organisation known as FIDO, um, which is the slogan of which is Per Alcohol Ad Astra, which, of course, as you know, would be a, a version of the Royal Air Force. Okay, so you're going to have to back up a little bit there. There is a Formula One drinking association. And why am I not involved? Organisation. Right, okay. Fido. It's long. It's long gone now. We're far too serious. Oh, okay. But in the old days, um, we used to do things like uh, drink everything and throw the minibar out the window. That sort of stuff, you know. Or at least pretend to, because we didn't really throw minibars out the window. Because we left that to Mick Jagger and these sort of people. So, what was it? A bit more rock and roll in the F1 paddock in the old days. We had more time. We had oh. a lot more time on our hands. Uh, we didn't have deadlines every 12 seconds. We didn't have to compete on the internet. So we had one deadline a week. So, yeah, we had a lot more time, okay. a lot more fun. And um, people were more fun. There were fewer people around. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the, the books you inherited, all motorsport books. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I've got all kinds of stuff dating back to the 70s, some of it. So I'm just sort of going through and seeing what I've got twice and things like that. So if anyone wants to buy loads of old books, no, no, I'm not really selling them. So. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the only thing is I don't have any shelf space left. So I, that was before I got the 50 new books. I had no shelf space. So we're going to have to throw something else out. Probably, um, you know, some heirloom or other will have to go. Encyclopedias, there's no room for those anymore. And there's no room increasingly for some of the tracks we know and love. Joe, stop, I'm segueing. For some of the tracks we know and love because of the influx of new tracks from all around the world. And there was some big news as far as everyone else was concerned. But you told us like months ago that 
Qatar was going to be the TBC date on the calendar, and so it has come to pass. Uh, yeah, uh, but it's not a new track. It's been there for 20-odd years. We, just, we haven't been there before. It's a, it's a motorcycle track, uh, and it's got lights, so it's going to be a night race, which is fine. Um, it's better to have night races in the desert because deserts look better in the dark. Right. Um, as they've discovered in in uh, Bahrain and Abu Dhabi, that's why we have twilight races, because not only is it good for the um, <laughs> the uh, time zones, it's also good to make the desert look good because deserts are quite dull, really. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm interested in a little bit of how this unfolded because it, it, it sort of sounded like there was a gap in the calendar and, oh, look, oh, Qatar can step in last minute and fill it, but it's not like that at all because barring 2022 when they've got the World Cup somehow, they've also signed a 10-year deal. So this has obviously been like part of some big plan, some big vision. Uh, I don't know if it's – I think what's happened is that they, they, were, they were talking about the big vision 10-year deal and I think Formula 1 says you don't want to do one this year too, do you? And and they sort of go, oh, it's not a bad idea. We could do that, we'll and then squeeze that one in. out, and then have the ten year deal. Um, that's that would be my read of it because Formula One needed a place where it could go in the days. I don't know if are there still red lists and red zones and all that lark <laughs> in England. I don't know. Anymore. I haven't kept track, Joe. I'm just not going anywhere. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't go. I I don't go over there at all. So I've got no idea um, if there are still red. I think there are still red listed countries, um, but Qatar was was not one of them. And that meant that they needed a race that was wasn't on the red list to be the last in a series of uh, in a triple header because if it's the last one you can all go home afterwards as opposed to a red list country where you all have to go and sit in a hotel for two weeks and we're not doing that so um, that's why they were looking for one more race and it came along so I, I guess that's what's happened and people say oh no it's another race in the uh, in the Middle East, that's four races in the Middle East. Hey, if they pay the money, is is the attitude within Formula One? Yeah. Um, and of course, there are going to be people who are saying it's a terrible place to go. We shouldn't be going there. Bloody bloody bar. Um, and if you look at what's happened with the FIFA football, um, it has actually brought about some change already. So it has? because the criticism, yes, criticism. Mm. They had an election the other day. Did you know that? I didn't. Um, well, there you are, you see, because if you put shine the spotlight on yourself, you also open yourself to criticism, and they open themselves to a lot of criticism over the FIFA World Cup, and they've had to make a few changes as a result of that. So here is an example, just for people who uh, have an open mind, that sport can actually bring about change. Now, how successful that change is, we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, they have to be on their best behavior if they put themselves in the spotlight. Mm. No, that is interesting. But didn't weren't you telling us about a possible takeover of of Liberty from from Middle East? So F one actually being owned by Middle Eastern firms. If you now go, okay, there's four races. There was a long time. There was a long time ago that that was under discussion, ah, okay. and I believe it was turned down. Uh, it was Saudi Arabia, I think, uh, the the national investment fund. And if you look, you'll find they bought into McLaren. Um, that they've taken a little slice of McLaren alongside the Bahrainis. So, um, I mean, maybe in the long term we'll see we'll see a change. But I think it's more likely. And if you've seen recently, there've been rumours about Netflix buying the whole yes. thing. Yes, yeah. Um, which I don't really see as being a, a logical thing to do um, because while Netflix will get lots of subscriptions. They also have to do a lot more promotion. If you take out if you take out the TV companies in every country, you need to promote more because they're doing it for you. Mm. So, in lots of respects, um, just going to pure over the top television F one TV doesn't make sense. Although it does logic, it does theoretically. In reality, it doesn't really. So, if I'm right in thinking, though, there's no other live events that Netflix puts on. It would be quite a departure. I would be worried if. If if my beloved F one went to Netflix, well, that's true. But Formula One and Netflix have a very strange relationship. Normally, Netflix shows um, the the first series is the biggest one, and they go downhill from there. Formula One is going uphill from the first show. Each each season is getting more popular, and we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it particularly in American audiences. Uh, we're seeing growth, and we're seeing different demographics. We're seeing. I'm getting all kinds of kids, friends of my son who lives in America, 
um, you know, can we have a hat, please? And it's like, it's yeah, absolute journalist nightmare, but you know, this kind of stuff. Um, just wanting to be more involved in Formula One, want to know what it's all about. And so they're fascinated. And they, that's all come about as a result of, um, you know, drive to survive. And so I can see Netflix sort of thinking, wow, this is a good idea. But at the same time, I still think that the ultimately uh, having lots of people promoting um, your business is better than having just yourself doing it. Uh, my 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 problem would be, and we're getting this technical service over the top type things here, is that I haven't seen an F1 streaming option that has worked. So, I mean, I held my nose and I had to end up getting a Sky uh, desktop because that's the only legal way to watch F1 in the UK or you use Now TV. The Now TV app isn't good. It's nowhere near the quality of watching it on a, a satellite box. And when it was on Channel 4, the, the Channel 4 streaming services, I do like Channel 4, I love their coverage, but the streaming services and the app are woeful. And I just don't think that Netflix are going to suddenly invent you know, a way to do it well. The, the, be that as it may, I, I sort of agree with that. But I think you also have to say that Formula One has been very, very soft in its launch of its own over-the-top mm -hmm. service. F1 TV, they have not pushed it at all. And I think that's possibly because they want to make sure that everything works fine. And I think the world needs to move on to 5G or whatever the, the, the next equivalent of that is, you know, so that everything will work properly. It sort of does already, but certainly not where I live. It doesn't. Nope. Um, in the country in France, as you can probably hear, you know, it's, it, it's just, it, it's going to take time for the world to be ready for all of this. But I think over time, there will be more of this stuff. But I do think also that, um, trying to fill an entire it's like cnn really trying to fill the entire 24 hours a day with just formula one is going to be a hard thing to do um you know they have enough trouble doing it with global news um as you know you just sit around watching global news for a while it's repeated every every 23 and a half minutes isn't it yeah so like with the sky f1 channel sometimes i think oh i'm you know i'm bored i'll i'll flick to you'd be, the you'd be you'd be david crofted out wouldn't you yeah you'd be, yeah you'd be Nat natalie pinkhamed to the end or there's you couldn't, you couldn't go mad with paul Doresto or whatever it was know. toto wolf versus hamilton and bottas in gt cars and that, that was like on isn't a loop. Christ, isn't, isn't christian horner a presenter these days i can't remember he seems to be on it a lot <laughs> So back to the Middle East. Uh, so Qatar, that, you're you're happy with the state of that track. You're happy with their ability to put on a Grand Prix where we're all good to go. Uh, I'm not I'm not happy with the state of the track because I have no idea. Oh, okay. All I know is that um, there are people out there looking at it and probably prodding bits of it. And it might be a bit hit and miss in the first year because there's not much time, is there? Um, but having said that, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing, particularly you know, we have to think about the sport as, as, a, as a financial unit, whether we like doing it or not. And the race in Qatar is going to be worth a lot of money, a lot of money. And, you know, it's probably worth... Um, was that, sorry, was that an Italian accent? What were you going for there? Was that Dominicali? Uh, I don't know. I was, <laughs> it was just a, in a, an accent. I don't know. Uh, it's about probably worth three times what Britain would be paying. Wow. So oh. yeah, that you have well, or, or even more than that, possibly. You know, you've got to you've got to take into account the fact that these these races in Saudi and Qatar and Bahrain and Abu Dhabi pay a lot of money, and you know that's why European races are struggling to compete because they can't they can't compete. Mm. So, so he, yeah, we're trying we're, we're trying to keep European races alive because they are the traditional races. But at the same time, this is a listed company that's there to make money. So, and also the teams, let's face it, they're all there to make money too. So hit and miss, we don't mind hit and miss. I mean, the Turkish Grand Prix last season with their new track surface, that made things super duper interesting. So hit and miss in a new racing guitar will be fine. Um, but, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the Saudi Grand Prix though, because they've been posting photos and that looks a million miles away from being ready. Yeah, I'm told it's going to be ready. Right. So, because there were some pictures <laughs> what, posted in, by. To, listen, in, in what state it will be ready? I think everyone, quite often we go to places and, you know, rewind the clock down to the first race we had in Barcelona. And we turned up there and it was just covered in mud the whole place. Uh, we went to Brazil, into Lagos. When we went back there after being in Rio de Janeiro, it was just a mess. And you just get through the first year and. 
you know, you put up with all the the, the, the troubles that come along, but it's quite often the case. Mm. And usually, you know, things things are just decided too late in the day and it happens. But so long as it doesn't happen in a bad way, like um, I think it was the return to Spa, the new Spa, when the, t- the track surface came up and they had to cancel the race. That's way back in the 80s. Um, but it was... It did happen, so they have to be careful with that. But you know, some of the some of the veneer, you know, we don't necessarily need quite as much turf as right. you see in some places. So that might be a bit spit and sawdust. As long as the safety's, yeah. so, so long as the safety's okay, uh, and you know, and we've seen with Zandvoort, you can have new tracks with different kinds of safety nowadays. I mean, we've had we sort of a return to the to the to the gravel trap a little bit. Um, which is quite interesting because there aren't many runoff areas there. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's, there's things going on and, and it's also to do with the, the new generation of leadership um, where they're saying, look, some, perhaps we've gone a little bit too far in some directions. So let's just go back away and, and you know, wind, wind things back a bit without making it dangerous. Okay, which ways have we gone too far? Well, I think uh, some of the some of the uh, runoff areas oh. where there is no oh, we have endless troubles with track limits, don't we? If you have a wall, you don't have a problem with a track limit. Oh. Yeah, Monaco. Yeah, Monaco is a very good example of where track limits are not a problem. Okay, but Hungaroring Monaco without the walls, <laughs> people can still race because there's not the threat of hitting the walls. I, I always feel like the walls and the gravel. Yeah, but a, a, a threat of hitting the walls was, you know, that's part of Grand Prix racing. Stops you uh, overtaking. Way. Stops you going for it. Uh, that's an interesting argument, but um, I think if you ask um, the, the average young racing driver these days, um, are you going to go for it? No matter what, the answer is yes, as long as I don't lose my drive by crashing too often, you know. So, I like I like little, just a little electronic sensor, and if you go off, you lose a bit of power for a bit. Doesn't seem hard to me. But anyway, what do I no, know? But, no, but that's dangerous because no, not. drivers not not suddenly losing power is a very dangerous thing. While you're off track, the guy, the guy behind doesn't know, and he's going to fly straight over the top and land on top of somebody else. That's part of modern F1, landing on top of another car. It's completely fine. <laughs> <laughs> Once Max does it, it's allowed. It's fine. Moving on, moving on. Uh, do you think that the Turkish Grand Prix surface will be different this year than to last year? I, it possibly depends whether it's raining or not, I suppose. Oh, right. I have no idea because it poured with rain last year, didn't it? Yeah, but in the practice sessions, even in the dry, am I misremembering this? Even in the dry, it was super slippery. Asking me to remember. Well, ah, it hadn't been used for a very long yeah. time, so it's it's what you would call green, very green. But then uh, these circuits tend to clean up and then it rains and they get unclean again, um, or, or rather all the rubber is taken up and so they, they get slippery again. So what as far as I remember, and, and to be honest, they're a bit blurry, um, <laughs> some of the races last year because we did so many. Um uh, it was just raining all the time. It was a miserable weekend. Of course, and that was, I just yeah. seemed, I seem to remember just getting wet all the time. And there was a very, I mean, there was a tiny press corps last year, like 13 press there. So oh, know, yeah, I can't really remember much about it, to be honest. Joe, where were you on the Wednesday before the, te- no, sorry about that. I've put you on the spot. But of course, that was a very interesting race because they, they went and they were on the Inters, weren't they, for the second stint. Lance Stroll was leading and he had, he just couldn't switch the tyres on and fell down the, fell down the grid so that was a it was a very interesting race yeah it, it showed two things about lance stroll which is he has potential to be very quick sometimes yeah not arguing with that <laughs> i don't need to i don't need to, i don't need to <laughs> add the second one do i and sometimes he doesn't <laughs> so i was gonna and, yeah you know, go on. i was gonna ask about aston martin so, late later in, in the show but i mean we can go to it now yeah. because obviously i just wanted your take on the the otmar situation when he said that lance stroll was the the greatest talent ever or something well it's probably in his interest to say things like that even if it's not true but um it's not there's a fundamental flaw in a team when the team owner uh, will not uh, make a decision that is against his own relatives there is a fundamental uh, potential for disaster there because if you don't agree to have the best drivers in there. And there are people on the team who think that um, 
Sonny Jim is not the best thing in the world. For there now. is potential for trouble. No, 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 but there's potential for trouble. You can you can give the guy as many years training as you like. You can have people tutoring him and mentoring him and all the rest of it. And if he's got it, he's got it. And if he hasn't got it, he hasn't got it. So right now, and he's in year whatever of his Formula One career. Five, six. He needs to do a little bit more. And I, I just think it's a really difficult situation for a team because if you want to keep your job, you don't tell the owner that his son's not good enough. You just don't. It's mm-hmm. not sensible, is it? So um, even if you're a diplomat like Martin Whitmarsh, for example, it would be interesting to see if Martin would be able to say that without getting punched on the nose. Because um, as we know, Lawrence Stroll is not necessarily uh, the, the most patient fellow. Um, so we'll just have to see how it goes. I think there is a fundamental flaw in the in the uh, Aston Martin strategy because he, he he launched his factory the other day saying they're going to win world championships in four to five years' time, which is great, lovely, terrific that he's got that kind of passion and enthusiasm, put the money in. But tell me the last time that a uh, customer team against a factory won a world championship. I think you'll find that that's a rather a small a uh, group of people like none well well Renault um, Renault weren't in when Red Bull no of course no, no not Renault quite. weren't no, in yeah. no 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 and then there was no I, I Mercedes for Braun either cuz you yeah. you you're even struggling to find race wins if you have that you have two Toro Rossos which have been race wins which were slightly fluky you've got a you know you've got a a, a racing point um What's the other one we've had recently? No, 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 Renault one's all right. That's a, that's that's perfectly um, normal. The only other one I think is 1961. You might claim one of the Baghetti wins wasn't Ferrari, but otherwise, forget it. You know, customer teams don't beat factories. Therefore, the logic is that there's no way that Aston Martin can win a world championship within four to five years unless they build their own engines. Now then. Now then, now then. Of course, I think we covered, obviously, the McLaren uh, Mercedes win recently. But there's been a lot of talk about new power units coming in with these new regulations coming in in a few years' time. I I, I know they've covered it on the tech time yesterday, the lads did, but I, I wasn't listening. I lost track producing halfway through. <laughs> but they started talking about the, the new power units coming in. And, you know, I, I heard somebody say, that a lot of the changes were to appease potential new power unit suppliers. And I thought, well, are they replacing existing ones? Are they taking over existing ones? Or are we going to be in a position where we've got five or six power unit manufacturers with only 20 teams? You have to, you have to balance uh, the advantages for the new people with the disadvantages for the old ones. And that's very hard. That's what's taking time to achieve. If they can do that, other people will come in. Now, the problem with that is that you have uh, other people can come in, but the two who are talking of coming in uh, will not be absolutely, it doesn't make any sense these days to come in and supply your engines to somebody else. Because Formula One teams, as Stroll also said at the launch of his new factory, um, Formula One teams are going to become profit centers in the future. So we're going to make money. Therefore, if you're a manufacturer, you're going to you're going to have a team of your own to make money and then have something to sell at the end of it. You're not going to just let somebody else do the winning for you. Right. OK. Can you remind me which which brands we're talking about coming in? Volkswagen and Audi, both of whom have their own facilities up to Formula One level already, both of them having test tracks in addition to everything else. And they have all the stuff they need. So if they come in, they're coming in with their own teams. They're not coming in with Red Bull. Why would you do that? Red Bull are doing their own engine because they realize that you can't win world championships without your own engine. You see, they're smart. <laughs> They've, they're, they're ahead of the game here. But you know, everyone's got to work out, which is also why, incidentally, there should be a big push from the teams to have cheaper engines in the long term because that gives them a chance to get involved in engines. Now, we have a situation at the moment where three brands in Formula One, three car manufacturers, are riding on the coattails of other people. They're not really doing the job. So Alfa Romeo, Aston Martin, and McLaren are all car manufacturers, but they're not building the engines. So how are they going to win world championships? You know, how is McLaren's not going to win a world championship against Mercedes? So what do they have to do? They have to have their own engine. So what's the best way of doing that, which is have a cheaper 
engine as possible and a nice simple engine which is where we're right. going towards right so that is why in the negotiations they're, they're trying to talk them down to a less complicated less expensive engine i'm with you yes well i think that if we have that the people who are currently getting the free ride of formula one will actually look at saying well we, we've got to do it ourselves if we're serious because there's absolutely no point in competing in f1 um if you're always going to lose you know, you've got to at least believe that one day you can win. And um, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of delusion goes on in Formula One, but um, you know, there are some fundamental uh, principles that need to be followed. And one is you got to have your own engine. Okay, so how do Aston Martin get their own engine then? How how does Stroll? Because well, that's really that's okay. really that's really quite simple. In the end of the day, um, what's happened with Ferrari uh, at the very beginning of their life? Um, they were the Enzo Ferrari ran the Alfa Romeo factory team for many years. So he knew how Alfa Romeo's engines worked. And so he found a guy who knew how to design engines. It may have looked a little bit like Ferrari, you know, the, the other engines. And that goes back to the beginning of the sport. You know, Alfa Romeo had a lot of Fiat engineers in it from the very early days. And so what you do is you either hire Andy Cowell or someone like that from Mercedes, or you say to Mercedes, look, you're doing this F1 engine. We'll pay you loads of money, but can we have a slightly different version of it? Can we have a dedicated unit where you let us? And Aston Martin are doing this in road cars now. They, they're getting AMG Mercedes engines, but they're beginning to tune them slightly differently and play with them a little bit and drifting away from the mainstream so they have okay. their own versions. And ultimately, that can then become your own engine. So with Stroll's, Papa Stroll's, or near limitless fortune. My my crazy theory about three years ago was that he would eventually end up taking over the Mercedes factory team, and that would be his well, way. Why would why would they do that? I don't know. Internet. Because Mercedes Mercedes now has a, a profit center for a team, um, and therefore why would you sell it? And particularly if you have a if you have a Formula One team of your own, well, why would you buy another one? So if your Papa Stroll. You're not going to buy Mercedes if you've already got you just you just spent yeah, two hundred million on a new true. factory. Why would you buy Mercedes? It doesn't make any sense. So, um, you know, we're we're in a, we're in a, a phase where things are changing and developing, and people are trying to work out what the future is. Brands are trying to work out what on earth they are. Um, you know, and a lot of people are talking a lot of rubbish about electricity. I know we've been through this many times, but you know, <laughs> there is a hybrid phase coming for the next twenty odd years that isn't going to go away you've just got to have it so um and it, it, it's a stopgap. but you know ultimately everything will go over to electricity at some point when there's nice clean electricity which is available everywhere and cars can be powered and people have confidence in them i thought you were one of those people who was wrong about hydrogen what do you mean oh i thought you were one of these people who thought oh we should just move over to hydrogen instead a hydrogen is is fundamentally just an electric car with a different power source that you that you take around you think with you about it an explodey power well, ba- basically the hydrogen creates electricity it, it's not sort of you know it, that, it, it's a, it's a, it's an electric car but it's just powered by something different to a battery so ultimately the electric cars are going to be the future but just what form they take um and on the way i think hybrid is an essential part of it and also as the hybrid cars become more efficient the the requirement to um, extend the life of, of uh, fossil fuels um, obviously lengthens because if the things are more efficient, the usage is less than it's going to be. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. But the public needs – it's all very well everyone saying we should go to electric cars. Well, if you believe in going to electric cars, go and buy one because there aren't enough people buying them at the moment to make them worthwhile. And when you buy one, you'll find that – oh, it's not quite as easy as to get to this place and recharge it. You know, it's not quite as convenient as you want. Now, it is if you live in a city, fine. But, you know, there's there's a long way to go. I'm not saying we're never going to get there. We probably are. Well, we have to get there, actually. <laughs> it's not even, there's not even a choice in this matter. We have to get there. But it's just a matter of how we go there, how fast we go there, um, and how many stupid politicians come along and, and put in rules that are just unworkable. You know me, Joe, I don't have any strong opinions on politics whatsoever. Makes me slightly more... Well, there are some countries out there and there are some cities out there who are just 
behaving in a silly fashion by putting in limits that are just not possible to get to. Okay, I'm neutral on that. That's it. Mm -hmm. Since these hybrid engines came into F1, people have always been talking about they're too big, they're too unwieldy, they're too heavy, they're too expensive. So interesting to see a movement towards something simpler. I'm wondering, and this might not be interesting, is the requirement to have reliability and only three engines a, a season something that's actually holding that back because the r&d to make something reliable is really high and once you've yeah but r&d is something that car manufacturers are going to spend money on anyway and what we're trying to save money on in formula one is having endless numbers of engines so you have reliability uh put in there to stop you spending the money on racing the machines you can develop them as much as you like but you can only change them once a year or as okay. is the case now, once they're frozen for a few years, you can't change them at all. It doesn't mean you, you're going to stop developing. The next time something comes along, you'll have a super busy, fantastic, brilliant one. But you've got to wait until you bring it in. And that's, you know, fundamentally, the only way you can stop people spending money is to stop them. Okay. I, I would like, if there's anyone out there who has uh, any experience manufacturing F1 engines, spanners at mistapex.net, I do wonder whether the cost of actually just making an already designed engine isn't in fact lower than developing really reliable engines that will last for the whole season, if you, if you get my meaning. Like if, if it only has to last a few races, actually printing them off. They wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have bothered to restrict the number of engines you can have if it wasn't going to save money. I mean, if you think about going back to the old days, we had qualifying engines. <laughs> And the qualifying well, engines yeah. cost a fortune. They were fast and they blew they, they blew in half. <laughs> but you change them after the qualifying, you put in a completely different engine to get to the end of the race. So that's the silly side of it. That's the bit you don't need. I mean, we don't need qualifying engines. You might learn a lot from them, but we don't need them. You can run them on the dynos. And that's what they do. They just run all kinds of stuff on the dynos. And it's only the stuff that's reliable and good that comes through into the racing cars. So, you know, it does make sense. It does make sense. And I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find anybody who would tell you that there's anything um, that is uh, more expensive than engine development away from the tracks because they can spend as much as they like. You know, Even tyre development isn't that silly. And it can be very silly if you have a tyre war. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on to then the amount of races things have to last because – it's not just engines and tyres that you need for, for a race. It's people as well. You need to be, bring people around the world with you. And instead of 20 races or whatever, next season, Stefano Domenicali has announced there will be 45 races. Actually, that's not that much of an exaggeration. I think it's going to be 30 race starts next season. 23 calendar races. A third of them is the suggestion will have some kind of sprint race as well. And I've seen lots of tweets from team members going, oh, dear Lord, you know, they're looking at the state of their their uh, their, their kids growing up and whether they're going to see them, no doubt, looking at the stress that's going to put on relationships. Yeah, and they're, sprint, they're worried. Hang on, hang on. Yeah, sprint races don't add anything. No, I know. But the, the, add, the extra calendar that, dates. They are worried, Joe. I can well, see there's loads of them talking about it. Tell me they're worried. You know, some of them, quite a lot of them are doing rotational stuff. I'm doing them all. <laughs> Believe me, I'm worried. And and if you look at it, for the last 14 months, we've now done, I think we're at 32 races we've done in the last 14 months. Since we started again in July last year, we've just been going racing all the time. And I'm tired. Everyone's tired. You know, it's, it, it's not uh, – and we haven't really been traveling a lot, to be honest. I mean, we have been traveling, but we're not doing time zones. The U.S. Grand Prix will be the first serious – time zone change that formula one has had since we went to melbourne back in wrecking the, the the wilds wilds of uh, early 2020 cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, sorry, there's a telephone going off here, which is what the uh, just that funny noise if was. That's, if that's Toto, just answer it and just say hello. He'll want to be in the shed. No, it's not Toto because it's a... A French mobile. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, like you as a, a small organization, it's going to be hard for you to go, okay, well, we'll hire more staff because the maths might not work out on that. But surely with, uh, I'm available, by the way, but the with the teams, you've, you've got hundreds and hundreds of people, surely just adding a few more staff to but rotate. They can rotate. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they, no, the problem is they have a budget cap which means that they have to limit that because the, the biggest expenditure of all in Formula One is people. Mm-hmm. So you have to limit the number of people, which is why you're seeing the development of all these uh, spin-off companies that are um, there to use the technology that Formula One has. So you have advanced engineering companies. So Stroll's just saying he's, that's what Martin Whitmarsh is supposed to be doing when he comes in at Aston Martin. Um uh, and, and, you know, McLaren have had one or have sold it. Williams had one. Um, Red Bull have got one. Um, there is, I believe that the America's Cup this year will have at least two Formula One teams working with the yachting teams to develop things for them. I think there's some announcements coming on that, but I think that uh, whatever the British team is called, it's got a very long name, which includes Ineos. Um, I think you'll probably find that there is a... Um, a uh, uh, Mercedes connection there, and I'm told that Red Bull has a connection with uh, the Italians, um, but I can't remember their name off the top of my head. So is this all a way? My yacht racing knowledge is a bit limited. <laughs> is this all a way to get around the budget cap? Then I had just naively assumed that the budget cap would be just adjusted appropriate to the amount of extra races. No, not uh, it's not getting around it. It's just not firing people. It, it's it's using your people so that you can also you can keep them there in case you need them again in the future you know teams are all about people and the 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 difference nowadays yeah the difference nowadays is that um a lot of people are dropping out much quicker than they used to the turnover in teams is huge now because of the very reasons you're mentioning Mm -hmm. though you know we used to have lots of what we call lifers you know people who've been in formula one for life and we're getting fewer and fewer in number um and we should look around the paddock and go, well, another one's gone, another one's gone, another one's gone. And, you know, it's 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 quite interesting to see. Um, but they just don't stay anymore because it's too hard. So you have to find the balance. And obviously, I mean, ultimately, I think the best way of doing this is if the people who make the calendars actually live the calendars. And they don't live it in private jets. They live it in economy, in a middle seat as mechanics do, and they learn just how tough it is to do these things. You know, they think they're having a tough life whizzing around in their jets. I understand that. You know, they're busy people. But when you're making calendars and they're not doing them all, they're going off fishing, um, you know, for a couple of races a year or five races a year even, not not turning up. Um, and the, you can see it all the time. You know, people are rotating. Now, you can't – if you're the race director, you can't necessarily rotate. If you're a driver, you can't rotate. If you're a race engineer, you can't rotate. Right, yeah. So – there are some people who can't be rotated, but most of the people can be rotated. Uh, yeah, you can. I mean, you can you can rotate lots of jobs in Formula One, but some you can't. And for those people who do those jobs, it's very very hard. Mm. And you know, you are literally never at home. But having said that, roll roll the clock back to when we had sixteen races, and they were going testing every other week as well. So, is it any different? Yes, it is a little bit more different. Uh, because uh, we're doing much more. Well, we until the pandemic came along, we were doing more global traveling than ever before, and we will go back to that. 
you know, if these calendars actually come to pass as as are being planned now, we will go back to being that sort of living in a perpetual state of jet lag, um, which isn't easy. And as you get older, I, and as as well, I know it gets harder. And um, it is uh, it's interesting to see how far they can push before things crack. But the, the trouble that Formula One has is that Formula One sets itself impossible tasks and then achieves them. So an inter an intercontinental triple header is completely mad, but we're going to do it, and it will be a success. And once you've done it once, then the people who make the calendars go, well, we've done that before, we can do it again. And they're not taking into account the fact that you know maybe they were just lucky. <laughs> what we really need is for one of these calendars to screw up once and everyone to not be able to turn up and race one weekend. And then they might might start thinking, ah, it's not quite as easy as we thought because what people do to, to make these races happen, you have no idea how complicated it is. If if you, if you add in all the rules they have to live by and all the, the problems you have with immigration or, or the, the truckers who have to only drive so many hours a day, the number of truck drivers, as you know, in England at the moment, truck drivers are a bit of a problem, aren't they? So it's not Brexit. Um, it isn't. It's not. <laughs> oh, isn't it? Okay. No. Right. Well, I'm not arguing about this matter at all. I'm just saying there's a shortage of truck drivers. But, you know, this is the kind of thing. You've got to have an incredibly complex and very, very efficient um, organisation to do what Formula One does. Mm -hmm. And it, what Formula One does is amazing. It's really amazing when you see see the scale of everything that's shifted around and the speed it goes around. And eventually they're going to push too hard and it will and it will screw up. And we'll we'll have a race meeting where oh half the cars aren't here. How did that happen? <laughs> What's the international triple header that's coming up? Uh Mexico, Brazil, Qatar. Okay, well Mexico and Brazil they're close enough. Uh, have have a look have a look on a map and see oh, how no. close enough they are. Oh no. If There's I... a lot of hours of flying between the two of them. It's not, you know, oh, yeah, it's over there somewhere in America. They're all over there, you know? yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I, fell, I fell for that one time. I, I thought, oh, it's not very far to drive from Washington, D.C. to Montreal. When you've done it, you think, ah, yeah, it is quite a long way, isn't it? Mm. Um, and, you know, oh, yeah, well, they're next door to each other. You know, it's only a couple <laughs> of hours apart. Well, that's six hours later. I've also done that in Australia. We go, oh, Melbourne, Aust Melbourne and Adelaide, they're next door to each other, aren't they? Ah, uh, No. They're not. They're a good eight hours apart, you know, this kind of stuff. So um, it's easy to think of it being easy, but it's not easy. And so I think the Formula One really needs to have a screw up um, in order for them to appreciate um, what is done because it's mad. Mm. Right, have we got time for some listener questions, Joe, do you think? Can we squeeze oh, some of those in? There's a question here about one. stewarding. Let's see. Now then. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll ask the question about stewarding. But first of all, there's just an interesting kind of everyone assumes it's Michael Massey sitting there just as the voice of God making decisions. And I, I just need to clarify. It's not, yeah. it's not Michael Massey. It's not Michael Massey. Michael Massey is like the, as the Americans say, the district attorney who makes a case and says to the judge, Oi, judge, judge on this. The people who judge are the stewards. So. Now, before you launch into a screed about how the stewards are this, that, and the other, you should know that the stewards are very, very interconnected and as consistent as they can possibly be. And sometimes they get caught in their own consistency because they are forced to make penalties. In order to stay uh, with the same kind of penalties, they have rules that they have to follow. And sometimes those rules don't fit the situation. So they have to punish somebody more then they really want to, but that's what they have to do because consistency is what everybody wanted. Mm. So if you wanted, if you want consistency, you can't have flexibility, and and that's the problem that the stewards have. The stewards are all, to a large extent these days, almost all of them. Not a couple of there's a couple of people out there you think, oh, good gold, but which um, ones are those? Jay? They are. I'm not going to mention names, but they are. You know, they're very sensible, very experienced, very good people they're not just blokes in blazers like they used to be and they are uh, they, i think they do a terrific job to be honest i think but you are stuck in this consistency flexibility issue 
And I don't really know a way around that. I'm hearing less and less people now going, let them race. That was all very fashionable. Let them race. Don't make decisions. Just whatever happens, happens. I'm hearing a lot less of that. I think people seem to want rules more now. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is that the current car, I mean, if, you, if you're talking about rules and, and making decisions um, based on, uh, well, for example, look at, look at Belgium, the weather, you know, now that's Michael Massey who calls that. Yeah. And Michael Massey, uh, you know, people say, oh, too many red flags. The fact is that these cars cannot run in very wet conditions because the, 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 the way they are designed. So they aquaplane, they crash. And if they crash, Michael Massey gets into trouble for making them crash. Now, at Spa, we had this situation, um, I think we possibly discussed before, about you have Eau Rouge, you have grandstands nearby, you have all kinds of things that make it almost impossible for them to be uh, having any any potential for a big accident. You've got to avoid it because you're not allowed to have big accidents anymore on circuits like that. You've got to have safety that matches everything. Now, Spa is still an incredibly safe circuit in lots of respects, but there are certain bits of it that aren't great, and they're fixing those. But, you you know, again, it takes time to fix Mm. problems. So uh, you can't blame um, Massey for everything. Um, I mean, you know, the thing about Michael is you can't blame him for anything because he just, you know – Talk about water off a duck's back. This, this bloke's an Australian, doesn't listen to an awful lot of um, stuff. He, he He's trying to do the best job possible. And if his bosses say he's doing a good job, he's happy. And they do. They, okay. the, the FIA think he does a good job. Otherwise, they would be replacing him, I'm sure. Uh, so Regis's question here is more about the stewards. And I just want, I'm glad we took that detour yeah. because a lot of people do think the decisions come from race control and Massey. So Regis here asks, it may be a little far-fetched and I... I uh, but I would like to hear Joe's opinions on the stewards' behaviour towards some drivers, their leniency or lack of, depending on the driver. In my opinion, I think the stewards are more lenient towards some drivers when applying the rules. Now, he just cites one example, and I have to say, I agreed with this at the time. I couldn't believe it. We saw it when Charles Leclerc in 2019, when he sent Lewis off track, I think that was Monza, uh, where a Seb was then penalised in in Canada, I would, I would argue for a, a worse event. But it did seem like if if Leclerc did it, it was kind of fine. And it's like, no, you get a warning. No, you get a super special secret warning. Uh, so that's what he's asking. Though. Is there freedom, I guess, in the stewarding system to allow that kind of maybe even subconscious bias? Up, up, to, a, up, up to a point. I mean, we had a situation last weekend in wherever we were last weekend, Russia, mm. where uh, where Charles missed the um, – he was having an accident at the time and he missed the pit entry and he came whizzing back across the white line to go in. And the steward said, that you know, that's a reprimand. Now, people said instantly, well, of course, it shouldn't be a reprimand because such and such happened this in the past. Yeah. Yeah, but in the past, that particular case that was being discussed was somebody who was deliberately um, – doing something that they knew to be wrong. They weren't in the middle of having an accident when they got to the pit um, entry. Do you mean Norris, and, by and, the yeah. way? Not Norris. Leclerc. Yeah, it was Norris, wasn't it? Yeah. He, he was intending always to come in, but he failed. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> that's okay. But he failed yeah, yeah, to yeah. come in and then ended up coming out a bit and then continued trying to go in. In the cases people yeah, are no, citing... He, he was basically out, he was out of control, which is why he <laughs> missed the entry. And yeah. so when he got back into control, he then came in. Um and you know, and and if you get a reprimand for that, you know, I don't think that is a bad thing because I don't think you should be punished for everything, particularly if you're not in control of your vehicle. Um, you know, you can't necessarily follow the rules when you can't actually get your car pointing in the right direction. So, um, <laughs> it is in extreme situations you have to be a little bit flexible and they can be a little bit flexible and i do not believe that there's any driver there who gets special treatment the only you know in occasion in the past i haven't been happy with um i thought the way vettel was treated a couple of times was really lenient um because he had this tendency to sort of throw wobblies and crash into people and stuff like that <laughs> and but that was another age it's not the same age because stewarding is improving every year they have they have these i mean max went to one of these things uh, as a punishment actually it was quite funny he was he was given a penalty he had to attend the fia stewards um annual meeting Did he? to learn about 
Yeah, yes. And he had to learn about what stewards do. And I've been to one of those. And right. I tell you what, I came away from that with much more respect for stewards than I had because it's a very hard job. Can you give us some examples? And you don't get paid, you don't oh. get paid loads of money. Yeah, I mean, it's just the, first of all, you have the pressure of time. Was it, why haven't we had a decision yet? Um, good point. Well, you try sitting in a steward's room when you've got things going on all the time and making decisions, making the right decisions as well. Um, I think, and there's there's all kinds of things. Once you once you've been sort of shown around the rule book a little bit about what you have to do, what the guidelines are, what you can and can't do, and the mistakes you can make. Stewards make very few mistakes. Ultimately, it's quite impressive. They also have a sit. A system nowadays where you have four four guys who are basically rotational. They're, they're they're sort of the number one steward, and they're in constant contact with one another about oh. the decisions that are being made. They are they are circulating every decision and explaining it. Sometimes you'll have two of the four sitting in. You'll sometimes if they can't get somebody there um, because of COVID restrictions, whatever, you'll have a a flying steward who is actually on the end of a Zoom call who will be will oh. be providing input as well. I mean you always have you always have four stewards on the ground. You you might have to invent somebody you know invent uh, um give somebody uh you know put somebody in there but you can have a fifth one as well. You can have a a, a steward who's in the United States of America on a Zoom call in the middle of the night. You know. So that I think I think it's unfair but I understand why why fans, you know, naturally, you can't, it's just like referees, isn't it? You can't mm. please everybody. <laughs> and, and at least and we've got VAR here, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, particularly when you have passionate fans like Hamilton fans and Verstappen fans. Now, you know, some of them are completely bonkers and they take everything to wild extremes. <laughs> and anyone who anyone who is on social media knows this because you end up being battered around the ears by people saying you're this or you're that. And <laughs> yeah. the only way you can judge if you're doing well is if you're insulted by both sides equally. Um, yep. and, that's, and you just have to have a very, you know, have to be tough about it. But I think that education... Uh, teaching people exactly what happens. I think that's what and you'll hear Max sometimes say something in a press conference these days, defending stewards, saying, "Well, it's not as easy as you think," and stuff like that, because he's done it, he's seen it, and I think they should all go do that. To be honest, I think that way it helps for the people. I, th- well, I think we should all do each other's jobs. To be honest, you know, in that way, if we all did each other's jobs, they might have some more respect for the media too, or they might have some more respect. For, we might have more respect for TV, and you know, everybody. Everybody thinks their job's hard, but I'm a great believer in everybody mix and matching and finding out how it is with other people. So you come and sit in the shed here and press all the, the buttons and drink rum. Yeah, it would be a disaster, wouldn't it? And I, I will go and write about like what I did in the airport and write about what sandwich I had. I had a, a leafy <laughs> toasty. I, I don't write about sandwiches. Mostly. Very often. Mostly sandwiches. <laughs> Are you able to share those four names? You said there's four sort of pillars of the stewarding world. Do we? Oh, you're, 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 I think I'm dropping out here from it on my own ears. Okay. Uh, I have to remember them. <laughs> there is Tim Mayer, who is an American. Uh, in fact, he is American. Motor racing royalty, as they say Ooh, over there. Okay. He is, he is Teddy Mayer, who is the boss of McLaren, um, uh, Tim's father. And uh, he's grown up with motor racing and he went down the stewarding route and he's, he's carved himself a very good reputation for doing that. Um, there's Gary Connolly from Australia and Gary Connolly is, is best known for having crossed swords occasionally with Max Verstappen. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, he's biased because he's against Max. It's not true at all. There's Gerd Enzer, who is a German, um, a German judge, actually. He's a he's a very high highfalutin um, judge judge and and attorney in real life. You know they have yeah. jobs too. And, and a part time steward. Yeah. Well, no, he's he's quite full time ish, sort of ish ish. Okay. Now who the hell, who's the fourth? That's one? three. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm going to be terribly. I'm going to get. I'm going to get into terrible trouble now because I've forgotten the fourth one. Next time I see the fourth one, he's going to yeah. beat me up. Yeah, for, you're um, saying that that's the worst one. Is what you're saying? You're saying that's the worst no, I, of the four <laughs> by not remembering. I can think. I think. It, uh, no, see, it's it's also got a bit confused of late because of the pandemic. It's mm. much more difficult. So, for example, Gary coming out of Australia and going back, he has to sit in prison for 14 days every time he does it. So. Um, he tends to come out and do three or four at a time. Um, and there's, there's a guy called Nish Shetty uh, in Singapore, and he's been having all kinds of troubles as well. So I'm just trying to think. Um, so while, while, you're, while you're thinking, Joe, I just want to clarify, uh, uh, because the question did include why Lewis got, got a penalty and why uh, Norris didn't. The distinction there is that they changed their mind about what they were going to do and crossed a line or went through a red light. With Norris, he was always trying to come in. He just slightly yeah. failed to do so and then continued to do so. He was so out of control. So I just wanted to clarify that. But also, if so, if people had access to the course you're talking about, if they did some kind of program on it or like really like did quite an interesting segment on all that airtime on Sky Sports 1, I think as fans, we'd really love that. We'd lap that up and we'd benefit from it. Yeah, I think they should. And I also think that, you know, uh, for example... Um, I don't see any problem with having uh, drive to survive on uh, in in the in the stewards room. I don't see why not. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, anything that helps to demystify this mm. is a good thing because they are they're good people doing good jobs. And I wish I could remember the name of the fourth one because <laughs> well, I'm going to be in so much trouble. Three of them are good people. One of them is highly forgettable and irrelevant, according to Joe. Well, driver-wise, there are some <laughs> very, very good stewards as well. So, you know, we have Derek Warwick, for example, because there's, there's again, it's a limited group. In order to, so that you have consistency, there's a limited group of people um, from the drivers. So you have people like Derek Warwick. You have Danny Sullivan, who won the Indy 500. Um, you have... Uh, last week we had who did we have last week? We had uh, Enrico Benoldi, the Brazilian, and uh, the week before that I think it was Tony Oliuzzi, um, former Grand Prix driver. Yeah. So we have you know we have a regular flow. Yannick Delmas is always there at some point during the year, um, and he's a, he's the full time steward in uh, the WEC. But he, he I think he does the French Grand Prix every year. So we have we have people who are very very good um, and sensible and. You know they do do things for the right reasons, and th- and they're chosen for these reasons too. They're chosen because they're solid. Um, so you know, and and some of them are great. Some of the in real life jobs, like the judge, he's not the only sort of um, uh, person doing stuff like that. There's a there's a uh, an American naval captain, um, retired naval officer, and you don't mess with him. He, uh, come in here, stand to attention, and answer the questions. Right, you're fired. You get penalty, five seconds. Joe, Na- Navy's easy. The boat does the work. Navy's easy. <laughs> All right. Anyway, yeah. Good. This has been a really fascinating uh, uh, insight, I think, into, the, into that driver world. One thing I don't like is that Massey has – this is his words talking about the stewarding. They've talked about decisions being influenced a little bit by the outcomes, which I, which I don't like. Surely it should be judged on the no, incident. But they don't. They deliberately don't. Judge it. Now, for example, uh, Silverstone, we have an incident where Lewis Hamilton was deemed to be predominantly responsible, which meant that Max Verstappen was also responsible a little bit, or less so than Lewis. Now, Max Verstappen's punishment was that he hit the wall very hard and Mm. he didn't get any points. So he wasn't going to get another punishment because the punishment is what happens to you. And Turn it around in Monza, you have it the other way around, where Max Verstappen was judged to be predominantly responsible, um, and Lewis didn't get any points. So Max got a slap on the wrist, and you know that's that's the extent to which there is uh, impact of the result is is very limited, but there is there is a certain amount on whether or not they get penalised um, as to what happens. So if if Verstappen survives that incident, as in he just wobbles off and then comes back on track, three second gap, does Hamilton get a lesser penalty? Does he get no penalty? It's no, exa- it's ex- no, but Max might get a penalty. Might might in that scenario, if Max comes back on again, he might easily get a penalty because his penalty isn't stopping and not scoring. 
Now, you can argue as much as you like. I mean, nobody expected Lewis to drive all the way back through and win the race. Uh, and you can say it wasn't enough, but that's with the benefit of hindsight. You know, mm. after it had all happened, you didn't expect Lewis to win that race, did you? No. Well, I, well, yeah, it looked unlikely. But again, I'm just, it, it, do you agree with doing that? So you seem to be endorsing that the penalty should reflect. What I would want is let's have the point of contact. You see, you go, okay, that resulted in an incident. Pause it there and then make a decision rather than assigning blame after you know who's gone in the wall or what. No, no, it's not assigning blame. The blame is going to be assigned one way or the other. It's assigning punishment. That's the difference. Oh, okay. Okay. The, di- the difference is if you've hit the wall and you're out of the race, you're not going to score any points. So that's your punishment. You don't need to have a three-second penalty or a three-grid place penalty because you've already been punished. And if you are the minor blame as opposed to the predominant blame, you're getting your punishment that way. So, you know, and I think people – Obviously, you know, with the with the various fans start screaming. But the word predominant, whenever that appears, it means they're both to blame. Yeah. <laughs> and if they're both equally if they're both equally to blame, which doesn't happen very often these days, but it's possible, that is a racing incident. So that's not the narrative. Now, I, would, I would have I would have said myself that Silverstone and Monza were racing incidents, but the stewards judged that not to be the case. Because they judged and with the driver sitting on the stewards panel, they judge that for whatever reason, he was slightly more responsible in Monza. He was slightly more responsible in Silverstone. Now, I'm a, I'm have a broader sense of racing incident perhaps than the stewards do, um, but that's the way it is, you know. And you you can shout at the referee as much as you like, <laughs> but you know they are they are referees and they do make mistakes too. Obviously, here at Miss Apex, we don't acknowledge the existence of a racing incident. We always assign blame. Always. You do. Yep. So you tell me. But there are such things as racing incidents. Sure. If you say so, Joe. Where can we find more of your wisdom? On your blog? Yeah, occasionally. Occasionally <laughs> when I'm not writing about sandwiches, you know. Yeah. Um, I was at an airport and I had this sandwich. That's John's blog. It's the Green Notebook. It's really good. Go and check it out. It, it, there is some non-sandwich content as well. Uh, actually, I'd be, I'd be hard-pressed to find the mention of a sandwich in a Green Notebook, but it, I'll challenge you to find one. Okay, so there you are. I will go for it. Um, no, no, it, it, it's all about – the Green Notebook is about two things. One is it's about lifestyle of Formula One, which people like to know about. And the other one, it's about the gossip, what's really happening. Mm. And so – um, in in among the, I was you know there I was passing through the Alps and having a lovely time driving up the Stelvio Pass and all the rest of this stuff. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there like oh and by the way Alex Albon's going to sign for Williams or this is the calendar coming up, this kind of stuff. So um, or you know Qatar will be that missing race. These are these are that's what a green notebook is about. Is what a journalist should have in his notebook at a Grand Prix. It's good. It's like an old fashioned column, Joe. It's the Joe Saywood column. Well, I, I've done many columns over time, yes. GP Plus magazine is the reason Joe goes to uh, goes to races. But everything, you, if you search for Joe Saywood F1, you'll find all Joe's stuff. Please go and follow Joe uh, at Joe Saywood F1 on Twitter. I think that about sums that up, doesn't it? That's where to yeah, find you. Much. That's all the places to find you. You can follow me as well if you want, at Spanners Ready. And the show at Missed Apex F1. We'll see you for... Well, the Turkish Grand Prix race review, unless you're a patron, in which case we will be doing a Friday after FP2 live stream for our patrons. Just a chat, just a hangout, just a, a few predictions of the, the race ahead. And uh, we go a little bit, a little bit dad hub and remain indoorsy on there as well. Wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Inside F1 with Joe Saywood and me, Spanners. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.